you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journal, let me invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 6. If you're in a journal, that'll be on page 50 there. Luke in chapter 6. We're going to continue our look at the Sermon on the Plain that we began about a month ago. We took a week break last week for uh, Easter, but we'll jump right back in today in Luke 6. We're going to start where we left off at verse 36, and we're going to read to verse 42, 36 to 42. Also behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke and chapter 6, beginning in verse 36. God's word says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, use it, will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Once upon a time, there was an extremely wealthy and powerful man who was a newlywed and a new father. He had met his wife in, let's say, an unconventional way. The first time he happened to see her, he desired her, but there was a problem. She was married to another man. The man she was married to wasn't particularly impressive by worldly standards. He was somewhat poor, not, not powerful or influential at all. So what was the wealthy and powerful man to do in order to get what he wanted? Well, he devised a plan. He would use his considerable power to get her husband killed. Then, thought the man, his future with her would be uninhibited. Well, he executed his plan, and it, and it worked. And so, with the previous husband out of the way, married his wife, had a child. One day, as the dust was cleared from his misdeeds, one of his friends came to visit him, and they shared a meal together. And his friend asked the powerful man, Would you like to hear a story? Well, sure, said the powerful man. I love a good story. So the friend told him a story about a rich man who decided to throw a lavish party. The rich man in the story was someone of means. He had everything he needed at his disposal, including many flocks and herds. Well, near the rich man lived a very poor family who didn't have much at all. Small house, barely enough food to eat, but they were happy and they were content. They also had one single sheep who they treated like a member of the family. Sheep ate at the table with them, stayed in the house with them, and was loved by the parents and the children alike. The father even let the sheep drink from his cup and sleep in his arms. Well, the rich man decided in the story, instead of using a sheep from his own house, he would take the sheep from the poor family, and he would slaughter it and feed it to his guests. 
Well, as the friend of the powerful man told this story, the powerful man became more and more outraged as it went along. Rising from his seat, he exclaimed, how could the rich man take the poor family sheep? The sheep was all they had and they loved it. How could the rich man be so cruel? He said, I've never heard of anyone acting so thoughtlessly and selflessly. Tell me where this man is and I will ensure that he pays back that family fourfold. And actually, I think he deserves to die for what he did and the lack of pity that he showed. In his actions, yelled the powerful man. His friend who told the story listened to this outburst, smiled wryly, slowly lifted his finger, pointed it directly at him, and solemnly said, you are that man. The powerful man, you understand, had done the very thing that the rich man and his friend's story did, but to an even further degree. What he did was worse because he didn't take a sheep. He took another man's wife and sent the man to his own death. This famous story is an illustration of a tendency that I find in my own heart. And surely you have noticed it in your heart as well, which is of being able to detect a problem in someone else while ignoring the same problem that we possess. Or to be more outraged at the sins of others than we are at the sins we allow to go unchecked in our own hearts. Sometimes you and I can see clearly, or so we think, the specks in other people's eye while overlooking the planks in our own. Do you do this? This self-righteous hypocrisy that we're all prone to is what Jesus is calling us to examine in our text this morning. So week after, uh, after a week break, we drop into what I, I mentioned, the Sermon on the Plain. And he, Jesus, what he's after is teacher teaching followers of his how they are to live in the world. This chapter, as we've seen, helps to answer the questions like, what's a kingdom person like? What makes them different? How are they to be identified? What, what do they do to represent their glorious king? And so here again, Jesus is after the heart of the kingdom person, which needs to be altered. Those default settings, remember, that we talked about previously, they need to be changed because Jesus knows that the posture of one's heart will flow out to obedient actions in his likeness. So with this in mind, let's look at three more markers of a kingdom person. I'll just give them to you straight away, okay? Three markers of a kingdom person. Number one, kingdom people judge graciously. Kingdom people judge graciously. Number two, kingdom people forgive freely. Kingdom people forgive freely. And number three, kingdom people follow Jesus humbly. Kingdom people judge graciously. Kingdom people forgive freely. And kingdom people follow Jesus humbly. These are what we'll look at today. So point number one, kingdom people judge graciously. For this, we consider the first part of verse 37. And verses 41 and 42 says, Jesus, judge not and you will not be what? Judge, condemn not and you will not be condemned. You know, there was a time when the most popular, well-known verse of the Bible was John 3.16. God so, for God so loved the world. But now that has been replaced with judge not and you will not be judged. 
You, you don't have to be a believer to even know this verse exists, right? Even unbelievers know this verse, and they revert back to, of course, the king's English, right? Judge not, lest you be judged, right? And it thus acts as sort of a trump card against calling anything a sin, like a, a hedge of protection against being corrected or rebuked. Culturally, we use this verse to throw out all judgment completely, right? <laughs> as always inappropriate. For we think Jesus forbids it. But is this what Jesus is doing here, you think? Is he throwing out all judgment? You know, in one of the greatest movies of all time, The Princess Bride, there's a, don't laugh at that, there's a character named Vizzini. And every time something would happen that he didn't like or would surprise him, he would exclaim, who knows, inconceivable. Over and over again, he would say it. For instance, one of his companions says that someone is following them. And he says, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. When they're at the top of the cliffs of insanity and the man in black continues to climb up after them, after he cuts the rope that the man in black was on, Zini says, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. To which Inigo says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. When people use this verse to mean the cessation of all judgment whatsoever, we should say, you keep using that verse. I don't think it means what you think it means. So what does it mean? Well, this is why context is so important, right? You plug a verse out of, like this out of context, and it could thus mean whatever you want it to mean, right? We need context to save us from doing violence to Jesus' word here and elsewhere. One of my favorite sayings for biblical interpretation, and one I encourage you to remember as you read scripture is from D.A. Carson. He said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, a text of scripture not put in its proper context will be used as an excuse to apply it however one sees fit. We must not be guilty of this. We need the context. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, what does verse 36 say? What does verse 41 and 42 say? This will clue us in on what Jesus is meaning here with this command, judge not and you will not be judged. Taking the surrounding context together, along with what the rest of the Bible says, we can rightly conclude that Jesus is saying that the kingdom person is to judge, but only in a way that is merciful, gracious, charitable, and self-aware, while shedding pretense and self-righteousness. Jesus is against a judgment that is quick, censorous, and condemning. Are you pointing out a small flake of sawdust in someone else's eye while you have a load-bearing ceiling beam sticking out of your face? <coughs> That's what he's asking. Are you arrogantly insisting on careful examination and condemnation of others while you ignore the faults of your own heart? and would not wish to be so closely examined in the same way. See, we hear the word judge, and it's something automatically negative to us. The word judge as a verb in our minds is always bad. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how the Bible talks about judgment. You know, there are two words in Greek that are typically translated as judge. One is used positively. It means exercising a proper discernment. While the other, the one used here, means sitting in judgment of people or even condemning them. That's a big difference. That's what Jesus does not want to see in the heart of disciple. 
He isn't against wise discernment, right? And making moral evaluations or calling out real and harmful sin. If that was the case, then he'd be contradicting himself in Matthew 18, and Paul would be contradicting him in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. And again, consider what is actually said in verse 41 and 42. It doesn't say not to help your brother or sister out with their sin, does it? Does it say that? They still have something in their eye. Yes? Even having a bit of sawdust in your eye is bad. Can we agree on that? Haven't you ever gotten something in your eye, even if it was small? Did that ruin your day? You weren't productive for the rest of the day, right? You, you, you want it out of there so you can see clearly. It still needs to be removed. Just because it isn't a beam doesn't mean it's good or should be left unchecked. Further, Jesus says, first take the log out of your eye, and then, you see? You see what it says? And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You still have an obligation, friend, to help your fellow believer out. But be sure that you don't lack self-evaluation. And be sure that it is not from a place of self-righteousness and a posture of looking down from a self-imposed lofty position. So Jesus is not prohibiting wise discernment. He's prohibiting judgmentalism, which is an inability to give the benefit of the doubt. It's always being on the lookout to point out people's mistakes and flaws and missteps. It's a graceless condemnation of others. So what Jesus is not prohibiting is wise, discerning, and fair judgment on what is good and what is sinful. Jesus is calling for a proper and fair evaluation. Essentially, what this comes down to is self-awareness. Asking before you judge, number one, am I well acquainted with the sinfulness of my own heart? And thus, able to see the egregiousness of my own sin before a holy God? And two, how would I want to be judged? How would I want to be judged? That's the motivation here, right? Isn't that what he gives? Judge not, and you will not be judged. In other words, how you judge others is how you're asking God to judge you. Do you remember how God judges you? What's verse 36 say? He's merciful. He gives mercy to the undeserving. And he sent Jesus to be judged in your place so that you won't be judged. Do you see? But if you judge with merciless, condemning, self-righteous judgment, then at best you forgot how God deals with you in Christ. And at worst, you've never tasted of his mercy at all. See, one of the reasons we're all inclined to judge in this way that Jesus prohibits is because then we don't have to deal with our own hearts. Isn't that true? That was the Pharisees' problem, wasn't it, that Jesus had with them? They were really good at judging others' hearts and really poor at judging their own. It's far easier, yes, to focus on the sins out there than it is to focus on the sins in here. It's easier. It's, it's more comfortable. That's the, is that not the draw of gossip and slander? The more we talk about and focus on the sins, whether real or perceived, of others, 
the less we have to focus on our own sin and our own hearts and our own motivation. That's why we gossip. It's not because we're concerned for others. It's because we don't want to look too deeply into our hearts because then we'd really find something to be concerned about. It's easier. It's safer. It's more comfortable to look out there. Is that not true? Then it is to look right in here. Most of you know I recently completed my doctoral work, and the focus of the research was on biblical church membership. Well, you know, when you teach and preach biblical church membership, it sounds new and strange and foreign to a lot of people because they haven't really been taught it much, right, if at all. But biblical church membership is not new, okay? It's very old, very old. Not only is it in the pages of Scripture, but the early church practiced it. Baptist history, our forebearers, it's littered all over our Baptist history. In fact, biblical serious church membership is a Baptist distinctive. But in my research, I wanted to know why, for the last hundred plus years, it has been largely absent in most American churches. I was really curious. And would you know one of the big reasons given for what led churches away from biblical church membership? There are many, okay? But one of the initial steps away from it was when Christians in the mid and late 1800s started to focus more on politics and social order and what we might call the culture wars that they stopped focusing on the health and purity of the church. You see what I'm saying? Greg, Greg Will says, as Baptists learned to reform the larger society, they forgot how they had once reformed themselves. The more evangelicals purified the society, they less the less they felt the urgency of discipline that separated the church from the world. You see, the more the church focused on the sin of the world, the less they focused on killing their own sin. The more they judged the world in the way Jesus prohibits, the less they judged themselves and one another in the way that he encourages. But that's the draw of judgmentalism, is it not? Jesus is calling for a true and fair evaluation of one's own heart. To be more an expert on what is going on in there than being an expert on what you believe to be wrong out there. But again, this is not throughout the need for concern for one another. Now, the way in which we judge is done from a posture of actual love and the good of the other person while not neglecting our own heart work. It says James Edward in his commentary, Do not judge is not a command to refrain from ethical evaluation or spiritual discernment but a warning against a fault-finding and censorious spirit that binds rather than liberates others in the faith community. What Jesus is after is his followers to be quick to give mercy, slow to judge, to ask, how would I like to be judged? That will change everything because our inclination to judge others, right, and thus not deal with our own heart is to hope for the worst in them. Isn't that true? To not give them the benefit of the doubt to assume motives and even publish their sins so that we can feel and look better. But Jesus is saying, the charitable judgment you give to yourself, the best case analysis you give to yourself, the patient understanding you offer to yourself, do that for others. And underlying this all is that we are to reflect the character of our Father who is merciful. And a remembrance that we have been recipients of mercy and recipients of a gospel that hinges on the fact that someone else took the just punishment of our judgment. 
We must still make wise discerning judgment, but we must refrain from judgmentalism and condemning uncharitable spirit. And this leads directly into our second point, point number two. Kingdom people forgive freely. Says Jesus, forgive and what? You will be forgiven. Now, this is another verse that could be easily misread. We could think that Jesus is saying that our forgiveness from God hinges on whether or not we forgive others. Is that what he's saying? No, but it's actually not that far off. We need to reverse the order. He's not saying that we earn our salvation by way of our ability to forgive others. Okay, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that our ability to forgive others will flow out of and testify to how we've been forgiven by God in Christ. In other words, if we withhold forgiveness, we may very well be showing that we haven't been forgiven. That's what he's saying. Charles Quarles says it like this. Personal forgiveness is not a meritorious work that somehow earns divine forgiveness. However, the willingness to forgive others graciously is a hallmark of the true disciple of Jesus. Jesus' disciples are sons of God. The Son of God manifests the character of their heavenly Father, much as the sons resemble their earthly Father. In other words, those who have tasted of God's forgiveness through an encounter with Christ will be ready to forgive others. This is the greatest illustration. I can't come up with a better one than this. It's in Matthew, and it's given by Jesus himself. It's what's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's brilliant, okay? Jesus says there, okay, he tells the story. There was a king collecting on his debts, right? And there was a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents, okay? To give you an idea of how much money this is, consider that one talent equals 20 years' wages. One talent equals 20 years' wages, and this guy owed 10,000, okay? A laborer would have to work 60 million days, or roughly 193,000 years to accumulate this kind of money. But the number 10,000 was also as high as they would count in the ancient world, so this is like saying limitless or infinite. <coughs> in modern terms, this is like saying you owe what equals, you personally owe what equals the U.S. national debt. Okay, imagine, what is it, up to like 50, mil, 50 trillion or something like that? Imagine if you owed that personally. So the man, this man in the story is before the king, and he pleads with the king. Yeah, I need more time. He's delusional, right? If you owed $73 trillion, would you just need a couple more days? Right? But the king, right, he feels forgiveness. It says, from his guts. And he says, you don't need a couple more days because your debt's forgiven. So he absorbs the debt, the king does. And so the servant leaves, right, fresh off being shown this extravagant forgiveness, and he looks across the street, and there's some guy who he lent $1.50 to for a Coke one time. And he makes a beeline to this guy, and he grabs the man by the scruff, and he says, where's my money? And the man says exactly what the servant said to the king. He said, I just need more time. But this time, the forgiven servant throws the man in debtor's prison. The servant was forgiven 579 times the amount he refused to forgive. Now, I picture, if you're in Jesus' original audience when he tells this story, you know, this is a ridiculous story. 
How could someone, this would be, you'd be asking, right? How could someone who was forgiven so much not forgive so little? And Jesus may have said at that point, what? Exactly. Exactly. See, like we talked about two weeks ago in Luke about loving our enemies, the thing Jesus is not after is whether or not you feel like someone should be forgiven. That's not his point, right? That's not his point at all. Just as he is not worried about whether or not you feel love towards your enemies. You probably will not feel like forgiving someone who has wronged you. And actually, our instinct is to not want to forgive them. We don't feel like forgiving them. But is that the point? Does he just say that at all? Instead, we should do what we, like we talked about last time, what C.S. Lewis called good pretending. We act like we love them. <laughs> we act as if we forgive them. We pray for their good. And we will presently come to actually feel love towards them. It's hard to hate someone you are actively praying for and petitioning God for their good and flourishing, isn't it? The reason we don't want to forgive someone is because we don't feel forgiveness towards them. But Jesus says this isn't the reason to forgive. The biggest reason to forgive others is the remembering of how God has forgiven you. This incalculable debt that no one could offend you. In this life, anywhere close to how you've offended a holy God, and yet he forgave you in Jesus anyway. You know, the parable of the unforgiving servant not only reminds us of the absurdity of unforgiveness in light of so great a mercy, it also hints at a reason why we don't forgive. See, what it comes down to is that someone has to pay. Isn't that what it comes down to? Someone has to pay for what they did. In the parable, it wasn't that the debt disappeared. It was that the king absorbed it in himself rather than having the servant pay it. Someone paid. But it was the one who was owed the debt, not the one who incurred it. When we withhold forgiveness, it's because someone has to pay. And if the choice is between someone else and us, then the choice is relatively easy, isn't it? Someone's paying. They were wrong. They should pay. <laughs> that seems fair to us. It just seems just. It just seems right. It, it seems like the easy choice, even instinctive. <coughs> Jesus says, go against your instincts. Jesus believes that forgiveness received is shown through how we forgive others. If we truly understand the depths at which God would go to forgive our sins, to absorb in himself our debt, then we'd be quicker to forgive and absorb others' wrongs. Klein Snodgrass, who has an awesome name, said, God's mercy must not be treated cavalierly. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is shown, for God's mercy transforms. If God's mercy does not take root in the heart, it is not experienced. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. A forgiving disposition is evidence that a person has been forgiven. This is why only, only a Christian could pray the Lord's Prayer. Y- y'all know the Lord's Prayer, right? You've said it a million times in your life. You know what the fifth petition says? Forgive us our debts. What? Exactly. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you realize what's being petitioned here? 
When we pray that prayer, we're actively asking God to forgive us only by the measure that we forgive others. So if we withhold forgiveness, we're asking God to do the same. We're saying, in effect, God, I have refused to forgive this person, so please do not forgive me. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, when you declare that you will not forgive and yet stand before God with your precious Lord's prayer and you say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is this not the same as saying, oh God, as I am your debtor, so also I have a debtor. Since I will not forgive him, do not forgive me. I will not obey you, even though you bid me to forgive my neighbor. I would rather do without you in your heaven and go to devil eternally. (laughs) Those who are forgiven are to forgive, says Jesus. That's plain, yes? Those who have tasted of God's incredible debt-absorbing forgiveness, they remember that gospel. And they're more ready to forgive. In fact, they evidence that they have tasted the gospel through how they forgive. Now, here's the, here's the great irony of withholding forgiveness. You ready? We think we're harming the other person by nurturing bad feelings for them in our heart. But it's not hurting them, is it? Who's it hurting? Who's holding a grudge hurting, really? The grudge holder, the one who's holding the grudge. It's not, it's stunting their growth. It's it's giving them a hard heart. It's causing them to see the world the way someone who doesn't know Jesus sees it. What will that do for you in the long term? It can't be good, can it? Unforgiveness, like the old saying goes, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's going to hurt you. Don't you see? It's going to make you miserable. It's going to make you hateful. It's going to keep you from more of Christ. And for what? Friend, don't let unforgiveness keep you bound. Some of you are holding on to unforgiveness right now. Some of you won't let go of things people have said and done from years and years ago. Why? What's that doing for you? Or for them? Or for the kingdom? What would your Lord have you do? Forgive because you've been forgiven. Do they deserve to be forgiven? Probably not. Do you deserve to be forgiven? By a holy and just God? No, not a little. And yet he forgives, and he gives mercy, and he absorbs the cost of your debt. Jesus believes that the forgiveness and generosity you receive from God is transformative. He believes that the more you look at Jesus and the gospel, the more you will see your own bankruptcy And that you deserve judgment, but God forgave you. And the more you'll be generous in dealing with others. This is why Jesus gives this illustration of measuring in verse 38. He's asking, how do you want God to deal with you? Do you want him to be generous with his forgiveness and judgment and reward? Then you be generous too. And in fact, God has dealt generously with you already, hasn't he? Through the gospel, we have all the riches and forgiveness and love and mercy and hope we could ever dream of. And more. And so Jesus says that abundant, generous mercy and forgiveness received calls for abundant, generous mercy in the heart of the kingdom person towards the undeserving. The gospel transform, and the more you gaze upon Christ's beauty, 
the more you'll be changed as someone who forgives because you've been forgiven. You know, in the novel, in the play Les Mis by Victor Hugo, the story is told of a man named Jean Valjean. He spends 19 years in a French prison for various crimes, including stealing. When he's released, he's denied shelter from several respectable places because he's a convict. Well, finally, a bishop named Benvenu takes him in and offers him shelter at the church. Well, one night, Valjean, can't, he can't help it. He's got to fall back into his old thieving ways, and he makes off with the church's silver. When the police catch him, Valjean claims the bishop gave the silver as a gift, which of course is a lie. When the police brought Valjean before the bishop, the bishop said, so here you are, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that you, I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 20 francs. Did you forget to take them? Well, having said this, the police let Valjean go, and Valjean could not understand the grace that the bishop showed him. But it changed his life forever, and the rest of the story tells of how Valjean lived a different life, right, than that of a thief. Instead, he becomes a hero who gives grace to others without measure. The act of forgiveness and generosity towards him motivated him to be gracious and generous to everyone he encountered. This is what Jesus expects from those who have tasted of the forgiveness and generosity of the Father. He expects them to offer forgiveness and be generous towards others because that's how they have been treated. See, all these actions Jesus gives are continuous actions, do you see? He expects them ongoingly from kingdom citizens. So when he says, do not judge, it literally says, stop judging. He assumes you're, you and I are judging already. That's what he's saying, stop it. Why? Because you know him and you belong to another kingdom. One where you know that how you live now will affect what your reward is in the future. <coughs> do you want God to be generous to you? Then how should you live? These are the questions. You want God to forgive you, then how should you live? You want God to not judge you in the way you deserve, then how should you live? He wants you to replace the judging and judgmentalism you already possess with continued forgiveness and continuous giving. In other words, there ought to be no limit to your forgiveness and your generosity. It should be abundant, generous, overflowing like his is. But again, how can we do this? seems impossible. Well, it's because we follow our teacher, our master, our king, and in imitation of him, we pursue life the way he not only designed and commands, but the way he lived himself. So this brings us to point number three in our final point. Kingdom people follow Jesus humbly. See again what Jesus says in verses 39 and 40. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall both into the pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. I mentioned a moment ago about our feelings, which are like the king of our society, right? We probably not feel like forgiving. We probably will not feel like loving enemies. We probably will not feel like giving to those who can't reciprocate. We probably will not feel like uh, withholding judgment. And we probably won't like giving a good measure to folks. Not only that, but the world will tell us at every point. That to live the way Jesus calls for in this chapter is foolish. And to teach those things is rubbish. Think again of forgiveness. That's not something the world wants to see, is it? 
you know, why have there been, you ever asked this, why have there been so many revenge movies that do such big business at the box office? Revenge movies are like their own subgenre. Is it because they're good? No. They're terrible. Almost, why are there like 16 takens? All right, we got it in the first one, right? They're bad. You know why we like it? Because people love revenge. They love vengeance. They love to see people get their comeuppance. You gonna, are you going to go watch a movie where folks just forgive each other? No one will watch that. <laughs> because free forgiveness is weird, man. It's folly to what we think ought to be true. Now, what's my point? When Jesus says in verse 39 and 40 that the blind leading the blind ends in a ditch and that the teacher can't go beyond his, or yeah, the, the student can't go beyond his or her teachers, he's telling the disciple, follow Jesus, not yourself. Not your heart. Not your feelings. His ethic. Follow him, not the world. Because what he is saying is so otherworldly, so unnatural, that if we were to follow only our hearts and the unbelieving world, we would never, ever, 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 ever do what he says here. Friend, follow Jesus, not yourself. Not spiritual enthusiasm, not your instincts, not your fickle feelings, not your dumb, dumb heart that is deceitful above all things. Follow Jesus. Jesus' warning here, do not follow anyone or anything else ultimately but me. They are blind guides. And those teachers you follow on earth, they must be ones who are not only following me, but teaching what I said and not going beyond my teaching. Friend, we must be discerning listeners. What we listen to, what we read, whom we follow are not innocuous decisions. Following teaching, false teaching exists in abundance. Do you know this? It's everywhere. Just turn on your TV. It's, it's everywhere. And, and all the false teachers out there think they see. <laughs> That's the error of spiritual blindness. False teachers think they see. They think they know where they're going. But unless what they are teaching lines up with the words of Jesus, unless it drives you to growth in him, unless it drives you to make everything about him, unless it encourages your obeying what Jesus and the word says, unless it does all of that, if it does anything but that, it's false teaching. This is what false teachers do. They claim to be the ones who could see. They give you new teachings. They, they take verses out of context. They go beyond the words of Jesus because they set themselves up above the Lord himself. These are the marks of false teachings. And my friend, they are blind gods. You may like them. They may sound good to the ear. They might be nice fellas and gals. But if they're teaching anything that contradicts the Lord... They're false teachers, and they should be marked and avoided. You know what most false teaching has in common? I'll tell you. It softens or completely ignores the hard words of Jesus. It says, he didn't mean that. It says, God doesn't want you to be uncomfortable. He doesn't want you to bear a cross. He wants your success in life. You don't have to obey him. Friend, do not bear with false teachings. Flee from it. This is serious stuff. It isn't harmless. Mark and avoid it, my friends. You know why? Because false, following false teaching and false teachers only leads to disaster. Look again how Jesus talks about falling into a pit. Do you see that? We, we shouldn't picture the blind leading the blind into like a roadside ditch. The word here is meant to picture in our minds a deep pit. 
of which falling into would be to fall into a mammoth hole, which leads to death. Follow Jesus. Cherish Jesus. Be infatuated with Jesus. Be discerning and reject what doesn't point to him and to obedience to all that he said, including his hard words. Must not go beyond what he says. And if his word presses against you, ask him to change you from inside out and empower you to obey. Don't set yourself up above the teacher. Jesus, he's the ideal, he's the goal, he's the prize, he's the treasure, he's everything. Is he, my friend, who you are following? See, I don't know if you know this. You'll follow someone. You know that? You'll follow someone or something. You're doing it. You are being discipled. Did you know that? Someone or something is discipling you. Who is it? What is it? What are you listening to? What are you reading, watching, filling your mind and ears and hearts with? Are you being discipled by cable news? By social media? By your unbelieving peers? By false teachers? What is it? Someone or something is discipling and catechizing you. There's no escape from that fact. So what is it for you? Because here's the thing. If anyone but Jesus or someone pointing you constantly to him will only lead to ruin. Because you'll naturally, isn't this what Jesus says? You will become like your teacher. You will become like who you are being discipled by. People being discipled by cable news are becoming meaner and more partisan and less charitable. People being discipled by social media are becoming more selfish and more depressed as they wonder how they measure up to the picture-perfect airbrushed lives of people they see on there. People being discipled by their unbelieving peers are moving toward what the world says a flourishing life is and away from what Jesus says a flourishing life is. You become like what you follow. Who do you follow? What do you think about becoming? Who do you mimic or try to be like? It's someone. Friend, follow Jesus. Be in love with Jesus. See his beauty and his grace and his mercy and his love, his perfection, his perfect life, and listen to him and obey him and strive to be like him. Do as Robert Murray Machane encouraged. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Be taken in by his beauty and follow him and listen to him and love him. But know this. If you strive to follow Jesus and you start to be transformed from the inside out, you begin to grow more and more like him, you should expect to be treated like him. Jesus doesn't just call us to these things. He embodied these things. He loved his enemies, but they spat on him. He was merciful, and they crucified him. He prayed that they would be forgiven, even as they mocked him while murdering him. He was generous to the ungrateful. He was misunderstood. He was lied and gossiped about, even being accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, yet he never spoke a harsh word in return or felt the need to defend his reputation. He was abandoned and denied by his best friends, and yet he restored them and even commissioned them. He did not judge harshly, but looked at people with compassion. And how was he repaid? My friends, Jesus not only did not lash out at those who wronged him, he died for them. In their place, in their stead, literally in place of them. And he was innocent, yet 
he opened not his mouth. And he did that so that you could be forgiven freely. Even though you didn't deserve it. In fact, you deserve to be judged harshly. And I deserve to be judged harshly and mercilessly. Yet God did the opposite. He didn't count your sins against you. In fact, if you were in Christ, he took the record of your offenses and tossed them in the depths of the sea. Didn't we sing that earlier? What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Shouldn't an encounter with this outrageous mercy, this lavish grace, this incredible forgiveness change us? We have free forgiveness offered to us, but it isn't cheap. It's free, but it isn't cheap. It costs Jesus his life. It costs absorbing wrath. It costs taking on your judgment. Shouldn't that change our heart from the inside out where we don't see the world or people the same way ever again? Allow me to close with a story before we come to the Lord's table. It's a story written by uh, Simon Weisenthal, Nazi hunter. When he was a young man, the Nazis had come to his house. They pushed his grandmother down the stairs, and she died from the fall. The last time he had seen from his mother, she had been placed on a train and taken to a death camp. One day, as Simon was in a concentration camp, a man came up to him and asked, Are you a Jew? And Simon was wearing the Star of David on his uniform, so he couldn't lie, and he said, Yes, I'm a Jew. So the man said, Come with me. And they took him out of the concentration camp, through the streets, and into this high school, which was a, like a makeshift hospital. And they took him up some stairs into a dark room with barely any light, and the guard closed the door and left Simon in there. And he didn't know what he was supposed to do, so he just stood there for a while, and then he figured, probably we'd all figure, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and so he started to open the door. The hand of a dying SS soldier grabbed him, and the soldier said to him, my name is Carl, are you a Jew? And Simon said, yes, I'm a Jew. And the man confessed all these things he'd done to Simon and, and said, I need a Jew to tell me I'm forgiven. And he had explained how he had rounded up Jews and placed them in burning buildings. He had gunned them down. And he had said, I hate that I did that. I need a Jew to tell me I'm forgiven. And Simon thought about it. He thought about how this could have been the man pushed his grandmother down the stairs. Or it could have been the one that separated him from his mother, whom he probably would never see again. And he stood there and he wrestled with this question of forgiveness and whether or not he should forgive this man. And Carl said, please, I stepped on a landmine. I know that I'm going to die soon, and I wish you would tell me I'm forgiven. I have to have a Jew tell me I'm forgiven. Simon listened to him tell him that two or three times. Then he turned and he walked out of the room without saying a word. Now, I don't know what Simon should have done. I don't know what I would have done. But I know there's another Jew who lived 2,000 years ago. When a person genuinely repents, he offers them forgiveness. Regardless of what they may have done, regardless of what their history might be, he offers them forgiveness, and he offers you that same forgiveness. If you have partaken of that forgiveness, he says, go out and forgive other people as I've forgiven you. He says, stop keeping a record of wrongs because I threw the ledger of your record of debts into the depths of the sea. Won't you do that for others? In this moment, look into your own heart. Are you holding 
under some kind of grudge. I bet you are. Are you holding on to some kind of unforgiveness? Then petition God to radically grab a hold of your heart and remind you of his grace and mercy and to give you the ability to forgive, to absorb the cost as he has forgiven you abundantly and absorb the cost a, a thousandfold. That person might not deserve your forgiveness, but neither did you deserve God's. And yet he forgave freely. As we come to the Lord's table, we get to visually picture what lengths God would go to, see, to secure our forgiveness. And so we let that spur us on to do the same in light of so great and loving a Savior.